and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, October 3rd through Saturday, October 5th feature guest conductor James Gaffigan and from the orchestra percussionist Cynthia Yeh in a program including the United States premiere of Avner Dorman's Eternal Rhythm and after intermission, Symphony No. 8 by Dmitry Shostakovich. Here are Philip Usher's program notes on the percussion concerto Eternal Rhythm by Avner Dorman, the performance time around 25 minutes. At the age of 25, Avner Dorman won Israel's Prime Minister's Award for his LF Symphony, inspired by Jewish wartime poetry written over the past 1,000 years and ending with the hope that the poetry of the third millennium will not have to deal with wars. Born in Israel and now living in the United States, Dorman studied at Tel Aviv University, where he majored in music, musicology, and physics, and at the Juilliard School of Music in New York, where he worked with John Cordiano, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's first composer in residence. Dorman's music has continued to confront the complex world in which we live. His first opera, Von Fried, takes its name from Richard Wagner's famous house in Bayreuth and is a cautionary tale about the power of hate, in which the main characters are Houston Stewart Chamberlain, the notorious philosopher whose writings influenced the Nazi movement, and members of the Wagner household. The spread of hatred, intolerance, and fear that we see in Von Fried, Dorman said at the time of the premiere in 2017, and the ideas that Houston Chamberlain wrote over a hundred years ago are still the same elements of the dark and hateful plague we see all around the world today. Von Fried is also a reflection on the great German culture, Bach and Beethoven, Goethe and Nietzsche, that was vital to Dormann's development as an artist and with which he still feels a strong affinity. A new opera, Die Kinder des Sultans, The Children of the Sultan, which will be premiered in April 2020 in Dortmund, is based on a story of two children searching for their father in far-off lands and deals with issues of identity and diversity, as well as familial love. The bulk of Dorman's catalog is filled with instrumental music. Dorman has written several works for solo instrument and orchestra, including three violin concertos. The second, Nigonim, won the Azraeli Prize for Jewish Music last year, two piano concertos, and scores that feature a remarkable variety of solo works for piccolo, saxophone, and mandolin, among others. Dorman's double concerto for violin and cello received its U.S. premiere at Tanglewood in August by the Boston Symphony Orchestra with Pinka Zuckerman and Amanda Forsyth in the solo roles. In addition to Eternal Rhythm, the new percussion concerto performed at these concerts, he's composed two earlier pieces for percussion and orchestra, Spices, Perfumes, Toxins in 2006 and Frozen in Time the following year. In September, Dorman conducted Eternal Rhythm at the Enescu Festival in Bucharest with Simon Rubino, for whom it was written. Here are notes by Avner Dorman on Eternal Rhythm. Rhythm is perhaps the most fundamental aspect of music. In fact, the basic properties of rhythm express the essential signs of life. Without a pulse, we cannot live. Without pulsation and repetitive motion, the physical world cannot exist. 
To the best of our knowledge, the universe began with a large impulse, and the resulting oscillations, pulses, and beats are what we still experience, an eternal rhythm that stretches from the beginning of time in perpetuity. The concerto begins with a short introduction based on the harmonic series of overtones. Structured in five movements, each part is connected by a short interlude that echoes the familiar introduction. Each of the movements echoes the general idea of the harmonic series, an infinite series of oscillations in a different way. The soloist alternates between a variety of percussion instruments including vibraphone, marimba, glockenspiel, and crotalis, as well as a melodic set of tom-toms and a variety of tin cans and cowbells. The music of the Balinese gamelan inspires much of the first movement, employing a limited number of pitches yet organizing them in complex rhythmic cycles. As in gamelan music, metallic keyboard percussion features prominently, along with a variety of flute-like melodic combinations. As the movement progresses, energy accumulates, leading to a virtuosic drumming section. The movement ends with a simple tune that repeats and recalls the opening materials. The second movement begins with an expressive chromatic melody. The accompanying figure employs spiral structures oscillating at perfect fifths, the second interval of the harmonic series. As the movement develops, more spirals and melodic lines emerge and weave together into a complex web. Rhythmic and angular, the third movement, is structured as a call and response between the orchestra and soloist. Rising scales and syncopated rhythm come together to create a movement that is both lighthearted and energetic. While the scales initially appear to be standard at the outset, every few notes a wrong interval appears. As a result, as the scale rises, the music arrives at different and unexpected places. While the harmony of the movement is completely consonant, again drawn from the natural harmonic series, the rate of change is so fast that our ears hear what they interpret as dissonance. The heart of the piece is its fourth movement. Featuring a Hebrew text from the 11th century, this movement raises deep questions regarding our interaction as conscious beings with the physical world. Does the tear know whose cheek it runs down, or the heart by whom it is turned? It turns to its light that is now in the ground, and the ground knows not who has returned. Returned is a grandee of our town, a man who feared God and was upright and learned. The text figuratively reverses the roles of consciousness and physicality, asking whether one's tears know who is crying them and whether the earth knows who lays in it. At this point in the piece, we realize that the rhythm of life and rhythm of the universe are the same. Our experience of the world is inevitably linked to the pulse of the universe and the oscillation of matter and energy. The work ends with an exuberant movement, a celebration of life, energy, and an ever-present and eternal rhythm. Words by Avner Dorman and program notes by Philip Huscher on Dorman's Eternal Rhythm. And now, on to Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 8, the performance time around 62 minutes. 
Music and war were linked in Shostakovich's mind from early childhood, and an age when other precocious composers were cutting their teeth writing piano pieces, Shostakovich wrote a revolutionary symphony and the funeral march in memoriam to the fallen heroes of the revolution. Shostakovich was only 11 when the Tsar was overthrown. Ten years later, when he had a deeper understanding of both political unrest and music's incalculable power, he dedicated the Second Symphony to the October Revolution. The triumph and tragedy of war have inspired a number of musical works through the ages, including Haydn's dramatic Mass in Time of War, the noisy heroics of Beethoven's Wellington's Victory, and more recently Britain's War Requiem and Sir Michael Tippett's A Child of Our Time. But it's the wartime symphonies by Dmitry Shostakovich that most powerfully tell of individual anguish amid mass devastation that reveal personal grief and the victories of the soul against the big, messy backdrop of combat. Perhaps in Shostakovich's case, we know so much about his own personal political battles that we read too generously between the lines, placing an unnecessary burden on the music. But in the 7th, the Leningrad, and 8th symphonies, both written at the height of World War II and in a tremendous emotional white heat, the notes on the page carry a heavy weight. Both works were designed as public statements intended to address big issues, and they're overwhelming in their sheer size and emotional range. Yet, despite their monumental scale, it's a solitary voice that lingers in the ear after the sounds of trumpets and drums have receded. The conflict between public speech and private thought is the province of the modern Soviet artist. Certainly Shostakovich became its most famous victim and his Fifth Symphony, the most astonishing apology ever written in the form of music. Throughout his life, the symphony was Shostakovich's public forum. Despite, and often because of, political tension, the composer maintained his public pose in these big works, leaving the darker, more personal thoughts for his string quartets. But even the symphonies betray him. For many listeners, the end of the Fifth Symphony, with its heroic cadences, sounds oddly hollow, as if Shostakovich could play the part no longer. Shostakovich obviously understood the curious power of music, strangely tangible yet inexplicit, somewhere beyond words. Often this was for him its saving grace. Words are not my genre, he once told Evgeny Yevtushenko, whose words he did set in the 13th symphony, Babi Yar. I never lie in music, Shostakovich said, and it was Yevtushenko's outspoken text not Shostakovich's music that caused trouble and had to be revised after the premiere. Certainly, Shostakovich's own words raise many questions even today. The authenticity of testimony, the memoirs of Dmitry Shostakovich as related to and edited by Solomon Volkov, is still disputed. And so we're left with the music. In his introduction to testimony, Volkov quotes Ilya Ehrenberg, who said when confronted with the Eighth Symphony, music has a great advantage. Without mentioning anything, it can say everything. Shostakovich himself always maintained a curious silence regarding his Eighth Symphony, even though he had often spoken out about its predecessor and fellow war symphony, the Leningrad. 
These two works, for all their similarities, could hardly be more different. Unlike the Seventh Symphony, the Eighth has no title, and it isn't about anything as concrete as the Siege of Leningrad. The circumstances that inspired it are less sensational. The original score says only, The composer worked on the symphony at the Ivanovo Home for Composers' Creative Work in the summer of 1943. And the music, less specific in its evocation. But if anything, the eighth is more deeply motivated. While the seventh chronicles the horrors of war, the eighth seeks understanding. And where the seventh limits its scope to the triumph of victory, the eighth looks beyond the horizon to true peace. Shostakovich cast the work in an irregular arrangement of five movements, the last three linked in one powerful, unbroken sequence that is unparalleled in the symphonic literature. That span of music, lasting a full half hour, is balanced by a single movement nearly as long and heavy with anger and sadness at the start. A quick and savage scherzo, marked simply allegretto, stands between. A solitary strand of music played by the cellos and basses begins the symphony, adagio and fortissimo. Shostakovich moves somberly through slowly shifting music, dirge-like and contemplative, then angry, even explosive. A barely contained outburst gives way to a long passage of quiet reflection. Midway, the music slowly rises to its greatest climax and then breaks to reveal the mad galloping of the Allegro non troppo, capped by wild horn calls and a beating drum. Movement is halted, finally, by an explosion signaled by terrifying drum rolls, leaving us with the sound of an English horn, the lone survivor, and a nearly deafening silence. Shostakovich makes little of the shift from C minor to C major. The latter has rarely sounded so bleak. Even though this is our first glimpse of our destination, still a half hour away. Next comes the full force of the allegretto, tremendous and irregular marching music characterized by the swagger of the brass band, striding tunes, high-flying piccolos squeals, and a banging drum. It's a harrowing vision of the military march. The music eventually disintegrates. At one point, there's little left but the flute on top and the contrabassoon five octaves below, and then rears up for one last crash. The last three movements are conceived as one. The climax of the Allegro non troppo becomes the beginning of the Largo. The crux of that movement, in turn, opens onto the great vistas of the final Allegretto. This progression is calculated with a keen sense of drama and a master's command of the big picture. The Allegro non troppo is a terrifying piece of music, not only because of its menacing tone and dangerous pace, but also because it sounds inhuman, like the workings of a giant and sinister machine. It begins with rapid, even quarter notes that march relentlessly through every measure, starting in the violas and eventually invading the entire orchestra. Page after page brings no relief, only the occasional shrill cries of the winds or a crazed bugle call. Suddenly, 
with a drum roll and a couple of grand ceremonial chords from the full orchestra, a powerful unison theme is announced. And only then, when the music pulls back quietly from triple F to a thread of sound, do we understand that the machine has stopped and that this noble new theme has swept us into the serene expanses of the Largo. That theme is the foundation for an expansive set of variations, and it's repeated 12 times, always in the low strings, while ever new ideas circle above it, including several rhapsodic solos. This solemn threnody, restrained and quiet, many pages don't rise above a pianissimo, is the calm after the storm. But while there's calm, there's not yet peace. That comes in a moment of extraordinary stillness, at the same time one of the quietest and most important moments in the score, when the three clarinets lead the music up into the pure radiance of a C major triad. The final allegretto, opened up by the discovery of C major, has an unexpected air of innocence. The music is simple and even playful. Listen to the opening diatonic bassoon melody, or to the jubilant piping of the piccolo a few bars later, and the scene is fresh and pastoral. Even though there are reminders of more troubled music midway through, the opening of the symphony breaks in at the climax, it's a bold and provocative ending for a dark, tragic symphony. It also has proven controversial. Critics found the finale anticlimactic. The Soviet authorities, unable to reconcile these few rays of sunlight falling on so much desolation, called it an optimistic tragedy. But optimistic is too unambiguous a word for the serene and dreamy, emotionally complex final pages. Shostakovich leaves it to each of us to hear this music as inward and personal as anything in his symphonic output in our own way. Program notes by Philip Husher on Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 8. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.